It's always uh, difficult to follow the art historians. I'm always always jealous of art historians <laughs> because they have all the beautiful images. But I guess we have wonderful. You have me. You have I. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we have Susan Russell. So there you are, and we have wonderful music. Um, so I think we'll do okay on this panel as well. Um, there is a handout that you should have found uh, inside of your um, uh, brochure, and um, it's uh, something that Susan will be referring to later. Um, and I would like to begin with um, just a very brief PowerPoint presentation. Um, Susan and I met before today, and we were trying to think about what are the, the points of intersection between music history and drama in this early <coughs> 17th century period? And uh, it struck us both that uh, there's, of course, a lot that could be said, but perhaps there are four points that are the most uh, significant. And first of all, the expression of human, e of human emotion. That's something that you find in art, obviously, as we have just seen, but certainly something that you find in a very prominent fashion in both uh, music and drama in this period. Um, the other is the idea that the text is primary, and we can talk about that a bit later, and we'll show you um, examples of that. Um, the third point is um, this idea that um, artists, musicians, uh, composers, uh, dramatists, playwrights, uh, give very clear directions and prescriptions to the performers. Um, and finally, the last um, point is license to break with tradition and with the conventions of the past. So we would like to explore these four points, um, first in music and then in drama, and then show you some of the um, examples. Um, when we talk about music, we have to back up just slightly and talk a little bit about what happens in Italy in the very late 16th century. And we must talk a bit about the so-called Florentine Camerata. Uh, they were a group of intellectuals who gathered in the wonderful city of Florence, my favorite city, uh, between about 1575 and 1592 to discuss science and the arts. Um, they revisited the platonic idea that music must be able to express strong human emotion. That was uh, probably of all of the wonderful things they discussed, that was probably the point they emphasized over and over again. Uh, and finally, this um, gathering, uh, all of these uh, ideas that were being shared by members of the Florentine Camerata, uh, which of course included composers as well as artists, as well as scientists, really led to the creation of a brand new genre, which is one of the most important genres in music, and that is opera, the birth of opera. Uh, in the very, very early 17th century, in 1601, 1602, we have some, what you could say, experiments uh, quasi-operas. We're not quite there yet, but we have composers such as uh, Jacopo Peri and Giulio Caccini who start to experiment with the idea of um, music that is staged, music that unfolds through dramatic action. And again, the whole idea behind drama um, throughout the centuries really is the expression of human emotion. 
Um, but the first real opera, the first opera that we consider to be the masterpiece, um, first operatic masterpiece, is really Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, which, by the way, will be performed, Acts 1 and 2 will be performed here at Penn State on November 13th. It's a partnership between uh, the Institute, the Center for the Performing Arts, and the uh, School of Music, Apollo's Fire, will be coming from Cleveland to do that. Um, so we have in 1607 the first um, real operatic masterpiece. Um, I mentioned Monteverdi, the first composer of opera, and um, I think one of the aspects that is most interesting about Monteverdi is the, um, his discussion of a concept that he refers to as the seconda pratica. And the seconda pratica, um, we can read together how he defines it. This is actually in the words of his brother Giulio Cesare, but this is how Monteverdi, Claudio Monteverdi himself, defines uh, his seconda pratica. By second practice, Claudio Monteverdi understands the one that turns on the perfection of the, of the melody, that is, the one that considers harmony not commanding but commanded and makes the words the mistress of the harmony. So this idea that the words, that the text, is of primary importance is really at the basis of this concept of seconda pratica. Um, I would like to illustrate some of these points that I have just mentioned uh, by um, playing for you a recording of um, probably a work that, you know, I could have picked so many wonderful works by Monteverdi, but this is probably the one that uh, briefly uh, encapsulates many of these ideas. And that is The Lament of the Nymph, which he composed in 1624. It was published later in the uh, Eighth Book of Madrigals in 1636. Um, and in this Lament of the Nymph, um, we talked about directions to performers. Uh, Monteverdi thinks of this madrigal essentially as a scene from an opera, a, a little short scene from an opera, in the sense that it is to be um, performed dramatically, and he gives very clear directions to the performers. And this is unheard of. Other composers prior to Monteverdi had not done this. But here is what he says. This song should be performed as follows. The three voices that sing separately from the nymph are placed thus apart because they have to keep strict time. The three whose sympathetic comments accompany the nymph's plaint have their parts integral to the score as they must follow her temple, governed by the emotions expressed and not by the conductor's beat. And I was, I was just talking to an um, early music conductor um, in Cleveland just uh, a few days ago, and she said, you know, a lot of early music performers do not really take Monteverdi's pres prescriptions. So um, this work, by the way, will be performed twice this November. Uh, on November 11th, um, I believe Jennifer Trost is in the room. There you are, by Jennifer Trost, our wonderful uh, voice faculty, and also by um, Apollo's Fire on November 13th. So, um, without further ado, I would like to, first of all, dim this uh, screen, Garrison, if you could help us, and I have some transparencies um, of the score, and then I would like to uh, play for you um, some of the Lament of the Nymph and illustrate. 
I realize that this is very small and that some of you may not actually read music, but that's okay. Do not worry, I will uh, help you out here. Um, I have circled uh, this one particular section and you will hear that something very, very, very striking happens at that particular moment. I think even uh, uh, those of you who have not had much experience with this music will notice that something very bizarre is happening at that moment in time. Um, the Lament of the Nymph proper is, um, uh, uh, is what we're going to hear first. Uh, it's not what you have in the score. And, but I just want to give you a flavor of uh, the sound of that section of this piece. That is where the uh, nymph herself laments her loss. Uh, her lover has just uh, left her. And, uh, and it's all really about the expression of human emotion. And if we could have track 10, Garrison, in the back, please. You can turn it up, please. Okay, you can stop there. So that's the actual part um, known as the lament of the nymph, but that lament is introduced by three male singers, and we could have track nine, and I will point to this measure when we get to it, and I really try to listen to what happens in that measure, and you will see something very striking musically happens at that point. Here it is. Okay, and stop there, please. Wow. <laughs> okay, so how many of you heard something very um, <laughs> striking? Uh, <laughs> not only my music colleagues, uh, but I see some other hands went up as well. Okay, what we have there is an incredible moment of dissonance. Um, if you know anything about music, what you have there is an E against a G sharp against an E, nothing too bad there. And then the next measure, F against G sharp against E natural, that's an incredible dissonance. And then it, as if that weren't enough, uh, F against F sharp against D. Uh, it doesn't get much more bizarre than that until much later in music history, until really the 20th century. So, um, <laughs> and what is the reason that Monteverdi does this? He is breaking every possible rule of uh, musical writing at this point, uh, of counterpoint. And he does this because of the text. You know, when he says the text is primary, this is what he means. He says, it's okay. I can break the rules of counterpoint if the text justifies it. And here the text, that one word right there is the word dolor, which means pain. And so he, he is physically, uh, literally expressing pain through music. He is giving you a painful experience at that particular moment in time. 
So I think this is the only example I can share with you, but it really encapsulates all of these ideas that we talked about, these, uh, these four points, which are once again uh, the expression of human emotion, which is pervasive throughout this madrigal, the text is primary, uh, directions, prescriptions to the performers, as I uh, just showed you, and again, the license to break with tradition, with break with uh, the conventions of the past. Um, so in a nutshell, it's all right there. Well, I found so much in common with William Shakespeare and Monteverdi, especially in a moment of discontinuity. Now, I always position myself before I speak. I am an actor, and I have spent my life in performance. And oh, yes, and that's my mother calling to say happy birthday. It's my birthday today. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So what I stare at as an actor are moments of discontinuity of a body in time, place, and space on a stage. Now, in order to stare at the bodies of an actor, I offer you this radical notion, the notion that a body in space, a body in front of a population, is uber-subjectivity and objectivity. When you place an actor in front of a mass of people, there is a great deal of information, of reception and perception happening. So if the body of an actor changes, this is a moment of discontinuity in the representation of a people. Either this is being compelled or impelled by a playwright, or the society around the playwright is creating this discontinuous moment. Now, I chose Hamlet to bring this to you because in one small section of text, William Shakespeare creates a massive new theory of performance, a different body on a stage. Now, in order to know where he is being a revolutionary, I offer you this tiny moment of acting theory. Since the third century ACE, in a text by Quintilian, the positions and the gestures of an actor have been codified. Since the third century ACE, up until 1602, gestures meant passion, but the passion that the gestures meant were located in the medicine of Galen. These were the passions of the humors. So this was a medical location. The humors that were expressed were located and emanated from the liver or from the heart. The heart did not exist at this point in Shakespeare's time as we know it. It was perceived as a pump with a candle underneath it. Therefore, based on Quintilian and the humors, an actor could not gesture any higher with his left arm lest anima and energia come through his left arm and blow the candle out. This is absolutely true. And this was a medical location of an acting technology, but it was also located in Greek positions that signaled certain amounts of passions. And you know these positions. You've seen them all your life. If I do this, you know what that means. If I do this, you know what that means. And this is what in, in, in the Scottish play, the ringing of the hands, Lady Macbeth is constantly wringing the hands. This is an ancient Quintilian notated gesture that means anxious behavior. Antiquity, antiquity. William Shakespeare in this moment went, ladies and gentlemen, we need to break this tradition now. We need to move forward into a new age. We have been to Italy. The humanists are talking to us. We can listen to the ethics of Greece, but we probably don't need to hold our little hand up like them any longer. I ask you to look at the first 
line. He says, speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you trippingly on the tongue. But if you mouth it, as many of your players do, I'd leave have the town crier spoke my lines. The mouthing that he's talking about is a rhetorical and an oration skill of metered speaking. What he did not was, speak the speech, I pray you, as I had. He's asking you to speak as a natural human being. He goes for, further and he says, do not saw the air too much with your hand. This is absolute rhetorical oration. He said, do not saw the air, but bring it gently as you would have in nature. Understand that he is recreating the image of the human being on the Elizabethan stage. He's putting a new human being in front of a population. And this is dangerous to the king or the queen, whoever's up there. The whirlwind of your passion. Now he is saying, be gently in the torrent, the tempest, the whirlwind of your passion. Understand that he's talking about the passion of the body at this point, and now he's beginning to attach it to the passion of his text. He's beginning to say, do not act and perform from your medicinal passion, but do what is written, what I have given you, because it is now going to be text-centric instead of medicinal. He says, do not tear a passion to tatters or split the ears of the groundlings. Shakespeare's a very funny man, and he had his opinions about Edward Allen and the Admiral's men. And when he says Termagant and Herod's Herod, he's talking about the other actors that surround him. He's saying, do not yell just to yell. Do not perform something that is not written because the text for Shakespeare at this point is king. And if you'll turn the page, here comes the pivotal moment, the pivotal moment for the actor. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action. This is crucial. He's saying, please, if you're going to gesture, if you're going to move on the stage, let it be from the text. Let me tell you how to do it. And then the last line that I emboldened, hold the mirror up to nature. Understand the danger of this human body on the Elizabethan stage. This is a natural human body. This is not a body codified by specific gestures that mean something. This is a body that is living. And this was a radical moment. And we talked about these kinds of discontinuous moments in art. And, and having listened to all this, and having had the beautiful, the beautiful evocations of the art, understand that the actor from that up until this point had been also trapped by print culture. There were pictures of actors, of that which is accepted, and pictures in museums of what was accepted as behavior and beautiful. And Shakespeare asked us to move out of that into nature. <laughs>